The opening titles of Kolchak the Night Stalker are a delight to deconstruct. As a seemingly carefree Dara McGavin comes whistling into the offices at INS, the independent news service, composer Gil Millet picks up on the melody and turns it into something breezy and innocuous, the kind of piece you might hear on an old commercial for Salem cigarettes or a lady's antiperspirant. Just as we figure ABC has really blown it with their music budget, Kolchak sits down and goes to work at his manual typewriter, which was old school, even in 1974. This opening music is all wrong for Kolchak, but notice how it changes character as he loads a sheet of paper into the typewriter and starts pecking away. The music begins to churn, giving us the inner workings of Kolchak's hyper-imaginative mind. And here, we have the difference between the world one lives in and the world one writes about. In both of the Kolchak TV movies, there had been a suggestion that the vampire and Dorian Gray figures Kolchak was pursuing might only exist in his imagination, a suggestion put forth by politicians and bureaucrats with their own reasons for keeping a lid on such matters. And now, with a different monster being introduced each week, there was all the more reason to wonder if Kolchak's creatures of the night might actually be the byproducts of the reporter's own paranoia. Hello, I'm novelist and critic Tim Lucas. You may remember me for the commentaries I did for Kino Lorber's previous Blu-ray releases of The Night Stalker and The Night Strangler, for which I received the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Film Award for Best Commentaries of 2018. I thrilled both of those films when they first aired on television, but I must confess that due to circumstances beyond my control, I never saw any of the Kolchak series episodes when they were first broadcast. And I must further confess that whenever I've tried to jump aboard the later broadcasts, I found the syndication prints to be so unattractive I just couldn't stick with them. But I'm very happy to say these new 1080p remasters from Kino Lorber make the series an absolute joy to watch. The shadows are rightly dark, the actors have actual complexions and facial nuances in their performances, and the monster makeups are so much easier to admire. So I think this show as a whole is now ripe for reassessment. This particular episode, The Vampire, first aired on October 4th, 1974 on local ABC TV affiliates at 10 o'clock p.m. My local newspaper offered this synopsis, quote, Trail of bloodless bodies sets Kolchak on track of vampire he believes is stalking L.A., end quote. This episode was written by David Chase, working from a story by Bill Stratton. To start with Stratton, with the exception of one script for Medical Center, he had not yet moved beyond story credits on anything, but this would change in the mid-1970s when he started writing for Hawaii Five-O, where he knocked out a sweet 16 episodes. Then it was on to the show's Vegas and Strike Force and a smattering of TV movies, including The Last Days of Frank and Jesse James. His final credit was an important one, Gunsmoke the Long Ride, one of the best TV movies in which James Arness reprised his role as former U.S. Marshal Matt Dillon. He died in 2014 at the age of 83. I'll tell you more about David Chase in a bit. Here's Larry Storch as one of Kolchak's old cronies, Jim the Swede Brutowski now working under the alias James Bright as an anchorman in Cincinnati, described in the script as, quote, sporty, tropically spiffy, razor-cutted man with a deep tan, end quote. Cincinnati happens to be where I was in 1974 and from where I am speaking to you now. 
Our local anchormen at this point in time were a pretty staid bunch, but circa 1981, our lowest rated local station, uh, WLW, Channel 5, introduced a new anchorman by the name of Jerry Springer. Yes, that Jerry Springer. Some years after he had made newspaper headlines for paying for the services of a prostitute with a personal check at a time when he happened to be the mayor of Cincinnati. Within 10 years of becoming an anchorman, he junked that post to become the king of tabloid television. So Storch's loudly dressed character is curiously prophetic of what TV news in general was becoming. Get yourself a haircut, a new suit of clothes, and move up to TV news. It's the only way to fly. Ciao, Carl. Hey, with James. This is Jack Greenwich as Ron Updike, Kolchak's professional rival for Tony Vincenzo's favor. And here is Simon Oakland giving his robust best, as usual, as Tony Vincenzo. Oakland remains exceptionally canny casting as Vincenzo because Vincenzo is a realist. He has no time for other people's psychotic fantasies. And if you'll remember, he played the psychiatrist in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, who was brought in at the last minute to explain everything with acute objectivity. Jack Greenwich appears in all but two Kolchak episodes, sitting out both Zombie and the final episode, Sentry. Greenwich had served in the backgrounds of both Rebel Without a Cause and King Creole playing Young Hoods, and he had a brief walk-on in Spartacus. But this series was easily the most sustained and visible work he'd had as an actor. He and Dara McGavin had previously worked together on an episode of NBC's The Outsider in an episode where Greenwich had played a gay hairdresser, and he maintained that caricature for this show where the two actors continued their earlier rapport. And um, I feel I could handle the story pretty well. <clears throat> uh, what, uh, what books you read, uh, Ron? The uh, Murty book, the uh, Harrison Lopato work, the uh, A Sense of Self by Sidney Obandi? Uh, just the Murty book and some articles. I don't know the others. Uh-huh. Well, the Murty book is fine, Tony. It's just fine. It'll give them enough information and knowledge to write the story. It's superficial, but enough. Carl, I want you to go. Kolchak has cleverly found a way to finagle himself a flight to L.A., where the vampire murders are happening. To get there, he must promise to cover the upcoming nuptials of a 15-year-old guru, Amrta Mera, whom we never get to meet. Getting back to the writer of this episode, David Chase wrote eight of this series' episodes and is listed as story consultant on all 20, so he was kind of the Kolchak on Kolchak, a job that I assume novelist Richard Matheson, the author of the two previous films, had turned down. Chase had previously written a number of episodes for The Magician, starring Bill Bixby. Prior to this series, he had also written a somewhat respectable lower-tier vampire movie, 1973's Grave of the Vampire, starring Michael Pataki and William Smith. If you look at the series' pilot episode, The Ripper, written by Rudolf Borcher, you'll see that it's almost a carbon copy of The Night Stalker, so I think Chase may be responsible for whatever variety and imagination the series ultimately offered. When this show was canceled after its first season, Chase moved up to become the producer of such shows as The Rockford Files and Northern Exposure, and later, of course, became the creator and executive producer of HBO's landmark series, The Sopranos. This is Suzanne Charney as Catherine Rollins, whom Chase tricks us into believing will be the next victim on The Vampire's Menu. She's a working girl who's been picked up on the Sunset Strip, nice thematic incorporation of the word sunset, by the way, 
by an old friend she hasn't seen in three years. As Kolchak's world-weary narration intones, a lot had changed in three years. Headache was nothing compared to the agony she experienced before she died. David Chase pulls off a splendid switcheroo here. It would seem that Linda Cordner, played by an uncredited Betty Endicott, doesn't often see her sister Catherine at dinner time. The Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel, directly across the street from Grauman's Chinese Theater. If you look across the street to the theater's right, you can see part of a marquee announcing George Siegel starring in Robert Altman's California Split. In my Night Stalker commentary, I talked about Richard Matheson's teleplay and its similarities to Leslie H. Whitten Jr.'s 1965 novel Progeny of the Adder, which was a novel that Matheson had previously adapted as a screenplay for American International Pictures, which was never produced. Progeny of the Adder was the first novel to unleash a vampire character in a conspicuously modern world of automobiles and liberated young women. The Night Stalker turned up the modernity with open references to prostitution, but in this episode, the vampire, the prostitute, is the vampire. It's important to remember how novel this idea was. It wasn't until 1978 that Vampire Hookers became an actual movie title, though David Cronenberg's films Shivers and Rabid, released in 1975 and 1977 respectively, were about the transmission of a virulent contagion venereal in nature that was outwardly no different to the naked eye than traditional vampirism. This scene, in which Kolchak accustoms himself to his hotel room and makes a telephone call, caused me to focus on his costuming, which you may have noticed never changes from one episode to another. This is another very subtle way in which the show seduces us into accepting some highly preposterous premises. No one really dresses like this, least of all someone who insists that the rest of the world take his warnings seriously. But at the same time, Kolchak's outfit, the seersucker suit, the $15 hat, the dirty sneakers, becomes sort of analogous to his superhero suit. He's our hero, and a hero must have a uniform to go with his job. Kolchak is interviewing Deputy Sample of the Barstow PD, played by John Doucette. Doucette was an almost ubiquitous heavy in films and television from the late 1940s through the 1980s, appearing mostly in crime and television projects. As a kid, I first became aware of him in the role of Slugger in the Adventures of Superman episode, The Birthday Letter, in which the soft-hearted thug dons a Superman costume to abduct a gullible little girl whom he later saves from his own cronies. That one episode served as a permanent link to me, so I was always happy to see Doucette turn up in movies like Robert C. Ogmack's Criss Cross, Anthony Mann's Winchester 73, Alfred Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train, and Fritz Lang's Rancho Notorious and the Big Heat, even when he was playing much better news. He can also be seen in Julius Caesar, True Grit, Patton, close to 300 credits overall. It seems as though he and McGavin had a hard time getting through this scene without laughing. They try their hardest not to look at each other in the eye and look pretty red in the face. John Doucette died at age 73, about 20 years after filming this. The Vampire was the first of four Kolchak episodes to be directed by Don Weiss. 
The other three were Firefall, the Trevi Collection, and Demon in Lace. A Milwaukee native, born in 1922, Weiss first made a name for himself in second-rank MGM musicals like I Love Melvin and The Affairs of Dobie Gillis. His erratic filmography includes titles like The Gene Krupa Story, the Bob Hope comedy Critics' Choice, and the Connie Francis vehicle Looking for Love, which is notable for featuring Johnny Carson's only appearance in a feature film. Now I must interrupt myself for a moment to introduce the episode's special guest star, the always refreshing Kathleen Nolan, nicely cast as real estate agent Faye Kruger. Walking out of the scene right now are longtime Daily Variety columnist Army Archard and his wife Selma. Army, which was short for Armand, was probably more widely known for his conspicuous cameos in films and television than his work was actually read. Born Jocelyn Jones Shrum, who sounds like a Kolchak character, best remembered for her role as Kate McCoy on The Real McCoys, Kathleen Nolan also played Wendy in the Mary Martin TV production of Peter Pan and was absolutely terrific in the three episodes of Gunsmoke in which she appeared. Just one year after this, she was elected the first woman president of the Screen Actors Guild. Getting back to director Don Weiss, in the mid-1960s, Weiss returned to his earlier juvenile musical chops at American International Pictures, where he directed Pajama Party and The Ghost in the Invisible Bikini. That film didn't originally feature a ghost, nor uh, an invisible bikini, but according to its star Susan Hart, interviewed by Tom Weaver in his book, Attack of the Monster Movie Makers, Weiss's original cut of the film was deemed incoherent due to someone's drunkenness, and additional filming had to be done by Ron Sinclair, which featured Hart and Boris Karloff as disembodied spirits peeking in on the film's teenage characters as they spend the night in a haunted house. He retired at age 65 and moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico, where he died in the year 2000 at the age of 78. I've taken the time to look at all the episodes preceding this one, and I'm impressed by how well the series adheres to the way Richard Matheson laid things out in his two Night Stalker movies, as Kolchak follows his intuition into the dark hearts of these various stories, he regularly finds himself torn in two by the siren songs of fantasy and reality, the latter presented to him in the form of regular warnings from Tony Vincenzo. The fantasy element is usually preceded by, well, by the murders, or mystery as it were, but as he follows the loose threads of those investigations, they generally lead to an encounter with an interesting woman with whom he may or may not become involved. In the series, there is less of that because the hour-long format simply doesn't have time for it. But in this case, that woman is Faye Kruger, a real estate agent in the here and now who turns out to have past experience as a journalist. We learned that she took classes at Northwestern University and also worked for a while as a reporter for the Greensboro Republican. Kolchak thrives on such kindred spirits so long as they aren't talented enough to encroach on his own territory as the star reporter. In this case, he rather cruelly offers Faye a shot at big-time journalism by ghostwriting the coverage of a Myrta Mera's Los Angeles visit that he's supposed to be drumming up himself. The dialogue here was tightened up over what is presented in David Chase's script, which follows Faye's fascinating, with Carl turning on the charm and inviting her to dinner. 
She says, so you can pump me about Amerta Mira and write your article? Kolchak, well, pump isn't the right word. Fay, sure it is. Kolchak smiles. Maybe we can do better than pumping. Ever thought of going back to journalism? So in the script, Faye is a good deal smarter than she is in the episode itself. She's onto him from the very start. Furthermore, in the next scene, she asks him point blank about Tony Vincenzo. Is he really that high on you? So she's much more suspicious of him in print. This bit coming up with the doorman is pretty funny. It's room 212. Start without me. Acting on tips furnished by police informants, we arrested the two suspects a few hours ago. The episode now introduces William Daniels as Police Lieutenant Jack Mateo. Daniels is inspired casting. Best remembered for originating the role of John Adams in 1776 on Broadway in 1969, and reprising the role on screen in 1972. Daniels is also beloved by Baby Boomers as the star of NBC's short-lived superhero spoof series Captain Nice, also as average American Wynne Quantrill in Theodore J. Flicker's satire The President's Analyst, as Dustin Hoffman's father in The Graduate for his long-running roles on the TV series St. Elsewhere, Boy Meets Girl and Girl Meets World, and as the voice of the talking car in TV's Knight Rider. He was born in Brooklyn to a showbiz family in March 1927. He made his Broadway and television debuts at the age of 16 and overrode his native accent with carefully cultivated new English diction, resulting in an unmistakable voice. His background in New York theater led to his appearing on a lot of early 1960s socially progressive television series like Naked City, East Side, West Side, and The Defenders. Over the years, he has played John Adams on screen twice, Adams' son, John Quincy Adams, in the TV miniseries The Adams Chronicles, and family cousin Samuel Adams in The Bastard, a TV miniseries. The reporters with speaking parts in this scene include Bill Baldwin, who was just standing to Kolchak's left, Alicia Maxwell, Scott Douglas, Daniel Elam, Murray Pollock, and Tony Regan. This scene, of course, follows another template established in the Night Stalker movie as Kolchak crashes a local press conference given by the police or government representatives where he establishes himself as a major irritant to all attempts at an official cover-up and the envy of all the other reporters assembled. As someone apparently in possession of facts beyond the ken of the local constabulary, Kolchak becomes more important than the story itself. He has slipped off screen now, unfortunately, but I wanted to mention about Bill Baldwin, who played the reporter who was so prominent in the early part of this scene. He was known for frequently appearing in films and on television programs as reporters, announcers, and news correspondents. He had actually been the war correspondent for ABC throughout World War II and went on to become a noted radio announcer. He can be seen in movies going all the way back to the 1940s, and his voice was heard in countless television series, including one about a quite different Adams family. It's amusing that the two suspects in this murder case are identified as, quote, admitted members of the Dark Star Coven, end quote, which makes them sound more like Grateful Dead fanatics than Satan worshippers. 
And I don't think this is accidental humor either, as David Chase later proved himself on The Sopranos to be one of the most musically-minded creative forces on television. His uses of source music are very intelligent and pretty much without equal. When I'm doing TV commentaries, I like to offer an idea of in what context the episodes originally were presented, as well as what they were up against. On October 4th, 1974, ABC's Friday Night Offerings began at 8 o'clock with Kodiak, which starred he-man Clint Walker as an Alaska state patrolman. Up against Sanford and Son and Planet of the Apes, it was canceled after only its second aired episode, which happened to fall on this very night. Next up was The Six Million Dollar Man, opposite Chico and the Man, and the second half of Planet of the Apes. And then the half-hour show Texas Wheelers with Jack Elam and Gary Busey, which lasted only two seasons, and was up against NBC's Friday night movie Bullet, and the second half-hour of The Rockford Files on CBS, which may explain why David Chase went to work for them in 1976. Still, in its first season, it was the clear ratings winner on Friday nights. When Kolchak was adapted to television, the idea of providing the character with weekly adventures couldn't help but stretch probability to the max, what with all these monsters and strangenesses turning up in and around Chicago. There were surprisingly few episodes that took Kolchak out of town. Another was The Werewolf, which took Kolchak aboard a singles cruise ship played by the RMS Queen Mary, the SS Poseidon itself. Sometimes the show brought the monsters to Muhammad, so to speak, by importing the guest bogies from other lands and cultures, like the Ripper from England, the Zombie from Haiti, the Spanish Moss Creature, the Native American Medicine Man in Bad Medicine, and the Ape Creature thawed out in the Arctic and fetched back to a Chicago lab. And uh, put on the wires, okay? You, you don't have any more offs, do you? Or Nary's or uh, Dost Thou's? <laughs> oh, I never use Dost Thou. Um, oh, I do have a Nary in here, though. What's wrong with that? Well, it went out with me things. In this episode, of course, Kolchak actually finagles a trip to Los Angeles, where most of the show was actually shot, with the modest exception of the office exteriors, which grants the show full license to show the city's sights for a change. As you can see, the Egyptian theater is playing Pink Floyd live in Pompeii, more than a movie. It's an explosive cinema concert. Here's the fabled corner of Hollywood and Vine. On the other side of the street, the Pantages Theater. The Capitol Records Building at 1750 Vine Street. Compared to Tinseltown, Chicago was beginning to look like the Garden of Eden. If you've never been to Los Angeles, you might assume that this particular detail was invented for the episode, but this is an authentic landmark known as the Hollywood Cross, located at 2550 Cahuenga Boulevard, just above the Ford Amphitheater and the Hollywood Bowl. However, what happens to it later in the episode is purely fictitious. At least that's what local police and public officials would have us believe. Kolchak has returned to the scene of the episode's opening murder to look for clues. This is the same room where the earlier press conference was held, everything painted in the then-trendy avocado color. 
He's so focused on his snooping around that he doesn't realize that he's in the presence of Lieutenant Matteo. In the script, Matteo breaks the silence by saying, Well, my English friend, I was hoping very much you'd be back in Manchester by now, a reference to Kolchak's earlier identification of himself as a reporter for the Manchester Guardian. As far as I can tell, this was William Daniels' first experience of working with Darren McGavin, though they would subsequently work together in a television production of Arthur Miller's play Clara, which was staged as the premiere episode of General Motors' Playwrights Theatre on the A&E Network, which aired on the evening of Tuesday, February 5th, 1991. I spoke to that deputy sheriff up in Barstow. I asked him if there were puncture marks in the neck of the victims up there. You know what he said? He denied it completely. And yet the truth was hanging out all over his face. Now, come on, Lieutenant. You know and I know that Linda Cortner and her boyfriend here in this apartment both had puncture marks on their throats. If I knew that, I would have told the press. Why are you having this fantasy? This is not a fantasy. There's a pattern to these murders. Matteo says here that one of the reasons he went into police work is because he wanted to meet interesting people. And interesting people is another great facet that the series carries over from the TV movies. In every episode, Kolchak follows his instincts towards the monster of the week, and that voyage takes him each time into an underworld of strange eccentrics who seem to live under the carpet of Chicago's mainstream. In The Night Stalker, the movie, these included Ralph Meeker and Elisha Cook Jr. Then things got stranger in The Night Strangler with Wally Cox, Margaret Hamilton, John Carradine, Al Lewis, and George Tobias, not to mention Nina Wayne's stripper, Charisma Beauty, and Virginia Peters as her husband, Wilma Crankheimer. The implicit purpose of all these odd characters is to show how unusual life really is, despite our tendency to homogenize it. It's full of all types of people, all types of personalities, all types of individualities, so strange in their variety that the idea of monsters being out there as well isn't really all that far-fetched. This is one of those people. The apartment's building manager, Gingrich, is played by Milt Kamen. Unfortunately, Kamen is more or less forgotten today, but when this show initially aired, he was still a fairly visible stand-up comedian who frequently appeared on television, either as a stand-up comic on talk shows or as a witty personality on game shows, or as a serious dramatic actor on shows like Route 66, Naked City, and Ben Casey. A former student at the Juilliard School, he had started out playing French horn with the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, believe it or not. I was surprised to learn that he's also credited with discovering Woody Allen. He's about to give Kolchak the information he needs to track the vampire. She come in late, go out late. Some kind of entertainment thing, hostessing or something. Yeah, for whom? Um, Grace's Catering Service. That's the name of the firm, I believe. Mm, that's right, Grace's Catering Service. That's right. Yeah. Uh, she was an entertainer, a performer. Yeah, I guess so. My wife overheard her talking about doing some stunts. Stunts? Are you sure she didn't say tricks? Tragically, Milt Kamen died of a heart attack in early 1977 at the age of only 55. It's one of the show's interesting traits to cast comic actors in serious roles. I imagine this is to invest the supporting characters not only with character, but the actors playing them with additional measures of spontaneity and wit. Even John Doucette, whom we saw earlier as the deputy in Barstow, though principally a dramatic actor, was quite versatile 
and quite able at playing comedy. You can see that something loose and improvisatory is going on between him and McGavin in that scene. And he didn't know anything. And speaking of comedians cast in dramatic roles, Jan Murray is about to come into our story. The trail now leads to Grace's catering service, an escort service run by one Ichabod Grace, who's played by Jan Murray. More of a takeover than a merger. Here, Murray's Ichabod Grace horns in on a date between the client just excused and this episode's vampire, Catherine Rollins, played by Suzanne Charney, who's working as a hooker. Grace makes it clear to her that he wants her to join his stable. The idea of a vampire posing as a prostitute is such an elegant fit that it's surprising it took so long for filmed entertainment to get around to it. Prostitutes were certainly worked into films before the motion picture production code, Miriam Hopkins' Ivy, and Ruben Mamoulian's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is just one who leaps to mind. But really, from the moment Bela Lugosi starred in Dracula, 1931, vampires in films became insistently male, overruling female sensuality with male authority. Universal's 1936 attempt to give Dracula a daughter was not popular with audiences. They did not make another film in that series until Dracula had a son. However, if we look to literature, the first publication of Dracula in 1897 was predated by J. Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla by a quarter century. Darren McGavin's performance as Carl Kolchak in both movies and all the series episodes is informed by portrayals of newspaper reporters that go all the way back to 1928 and a comedic play called The Front Page written by Ben Hecht and Charles MacArthur. The setting of the play was the press room of a Chicago newspaper, of all places, and the lead role of reporter Hildy Johnson was originated by an actor named Lee Tracy. But when the play was first filmed in 1931 by Lewis Milestone, Tracy was passed over and replaced by Pat O'Brien. And when the film was remade by Howard Hawks as His Girl Friday in 1940, Hildy became a lady, played by Rosalind Russell. Though he lost the role, the tenacious Lee Tracy held on to his performance as Hildy and turned it into his own screen persona in such films as The Mystery of the Wax Museum and Dr. X. With its wise-cracking machine-gun delivery, it was a persona that stood him well, whether he was playing newspaper men, gumshoes, press agents, or your average American G.I. brimming with spunk. He played characters with names like Alvin, Max, Bud, Hat, Griff, and Eddie. So by playing this single role, Tracy created two distinct strains in American drama, the characters who were like Hildy Johnson and the characters who were Hildy Johnson. And these two strains also come together in Kolchak, the Night Stalker. The same archetype can be seen in the great newspaper movies made throughout the years, such as the great journalism trilogy of Samuel Fuller, The Power of the Press, Scandal Sheet, and Park Row, or Citizen Kane, or Jack Webb's 30, or Alan Pakula's All the President's Men, which was actually contemporary to Kolchak the Night Stalker, or 1994's The Paper, with its great central performance by Michael Keaton, a Lee Tracy four-hour times. You also get a lot of motor-mouthing in Sidney Lumet's 1976 film about TV journalism, Network, especially from Faye Dunaway. Surprisingly, I can't find any evidence of McGavin ever having played in a stage production of The Front Page, but it wouldn't surprise me to learn otherwise. 
All actors who stand out have an area in which they stand out most, and I would say that Darren McGavin's ace in the hole was his ability to, one, make us believe in something extraordinary. On stage, he did star in productions such as The Music Man and The Rainmaker, sometimes as a magical conductor of a larger-than-life vision, and other times through a dogged pursuit of the truth. You get all of that in Carl Kolchak, and when you go to McGavin's IMDb page, what is the first thing you see? Carl Kolchak. And don't forget, we're talking about the father in A Christmas Story. Kolchak may have had his basis in earlier characters, earlier actors and performances, but McGavin made him a genuinely iconic figure in the long history of fantasy television. It's a wonderful detail that Kolchak is able to locate Ichabod's house of prostitution by looking it up in the yellow pages under restaurants. It's one of those details that drive home how much of what we commonly accept as reality is actually camouflage. No, 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 uh, later, how about uh, after 4, 4 a.m.? No days. Jan Murray, born Murray Janowski, was a renowned Borscht Belt comic who had been performing since 1933. He broke into television as a game show host and MC in the 1950s and began acting in films in 1965 with the cult thriller Who Killed Teddy Bear, which he followed with roles in William Castle's The Busybody, Tarzan and the Great River with Mike Henry, AIP's drag racing drama Thunder Alley, and Jerry Lewis's Which Way to the Front. His most notable later screen credit is probably as the nothing vendor in the French Revolution sketch of Mel Brooks' History of the World, Part 1. Jan Murray died in 2006 at the age of 89. One of the frustrations of this show is that the actors and characterizations are so good we wish we had more time with them. McGavin's rapport with Kathleen Nolan is quite engaging, but it doesn't really advance to anything beyond the superficial and sketch-like. Believe it or not, in the copy of the vampire teleplay I've seen, this was the last that we were to see of Faye in this episode. More on that later. Bye. This moment with the lipstick is one of the script's most inspired moments. There's not a lot of her in the episode, but in her few moments on screen, I think Suzanne Charney makes a pretty decent vampire. She's introduced with the element of surprise, and she makes for a nicely feral she-creature. But what we get is more often surprise than suspense. There's no time to build her up in dimensions. I would have also loved it had the show been able to trace Catherine Rollins to a past relationship with the Night Stalker vampire, Jano Scorzini, who operated out of Las Vegas and would have made a very interestingly plausible infector. Kolchak's date arrives and calls him Tommy, though the name he gave to Ichabod was Tony. Carl's opportunity to place his old pal Vincenzo at the scene of this indiscretion. All right, which freako scene is this? In the script, her initial response is, well, what do you want? Is it the vicar and milkmaid? Rasputin's pajama party? which is more obtuse, so the dialogue was greatly improved on the set between the actors. Playing this otherwise unnamed call girl is Anne Whitfield, whom you may remember as Dean Jagger's niece, or was it daughter, in the holiday perennial, White Christmas. 
She started out at 20th Century Fox at the end of the 1940s and made uncredited appearances in The Gunfighter and The Miracle of Our Lady of Fatima before she moved over to Paramount, where she made her most famous picture, White Christmas, as I mentioned before. You may also remember her for her role in the One Step Beyond episode, If You See Sally. She played the ghost of a young girl who goes through the motions of hitchhiking home, but never manages to quite get there. When he hears I came up here and didn't get paid. $200, sweet cheeks. $200? It's not a big role, but Chase's writing piles on the character and humor, and Anne Whitfield plays it with streetwise savvy, making the scene a real treat, especially when the former niece of Dean Jagger's General Waverly addresses Kolchak as sweet cheeks. Why would you want to do a thing like that? Uh, well, Catherine Rollins uh, was Linda Courtney's sister. Uh, she had reasons that even you wouldn't understand. Sister? Yeah. You are crazy. I am. Uh, what has Catherine been wearing? If you compare David Chase's original teleplay script to the dialogue we're hearing, it's like hearing two jazz musicians riff on a known theme. The interplay between McGavin and Jan Murray is very jazzy. Nearly every line is represented, but they both have their way with them. Am I becomes I am. The L.A. Rams becomes the Los Angeles Rams. You're withholding information in a killing becomes you're withholding evidence in a killing. At one point, Ichabod was supposed to finish off the first few things he says with dig chum, but that was too jazzy, and Jan Murray somehow didn't go for that, or maybe they sacrificed it for the sake of a neater, tighter cut. Apparently football star Clayton Stacker Shoemaker of the L.A. Rams, played by Hunter Von Leer, who would also appear in the second season episode, Demon in Lace, got the date that Kolchak ordered. It was arranged by his fellow players, known as the Godzilla Gang, back in the days before Toho Productions put the kibosh on such jargon. But here, their gesture proceeds to backfire on them. This well-staged scene, featuring some terrific stunt work, does a good job of jolting us back to our memories of the Night Stalker, especially the hospital scene where Kolchak gets his first direct view of Janos Skorzini in action. Catherine Rollins wipes up the floor with Stacker's Godzilla gang, but Kolchak makes swift use of his vampire lore to repel her, unfortunately a little too quickly for his own good. They got nothing to do with the fight. Be careful, careful, will you please? That might be good. As always, Kolchak's photographic evidence of what just took place has been conveniently destroyed. A woman did all this, huh? Yeah, well, ask your men. They chased her for three blocks. Ask them what they saw. All they saw is someone with long hair. Could have been a guy from the Dark Star Cove, uh-huh. and they all have long hair. Yeah. Do they, are they all built like Veronica Lake? Can they, can they juggle a Godzilla gang single-handedly, huh? Ever hear a karate kung fu? As with much of the dialogue in this episode, McGavin and Daniels rehearsed this scene thoroughly and then were let off-leash for the actual filming, encouraged to improvise around the literal word of the script to go with their emotions, to cross-talk, to inject humor, and so forth. I would imagine that this sort of approach to filming could lead to problems when cutting from one angle to another, but the different angles happen to match pretty well, so I'm guessing that more than one camera was rolling on set in order to ensure matching coverage. 
More than most other scenes in the teleplay, this one shows more compression, more tightening and conflation of dialogue when you compare it to what's in the original teleplay. Everything gets said, but in a good deal less time. It's possible that this scene was filmed more than one way so that it could play out at different lengths depending on how the running time was adding up. But so much of the original dialogue here is paraphrased on film that one imagines the actors might have been encouraged to zip through one take just for safety. Please, please, Lieutenant. Uh, let me speak to him. I don't want that word mentioned. Hi, Tony. This telephone call between Kolchak and his apoplectic friend Vincenzo is of technical interest when you consider that both sides of this conversation were filmed independently of the other. Of course, McGavin and Oakland had played this kind of scene in the flesh many times by this point, but Oakland had no idea what kind of energy McGavin was bringing to his performance, and McGavin had to be careful in his readings not to step on any of Vincenzo's lines or openings. Wherever he left off, Vincenzo's next line had to match it, and McGavin was frequently going off book. So the end result here is kind of miraculous. These two were really quite a team. It was what? It was a... Well, some say it was a couple of warlocks. I don't know what you're talking about, and I don't care. Now, you just remember this. Whatever you do next, INS is not behind you. INS is only behind a story on a murder mirror, which, incidentally, INS better get or you'll be waiting in line at window A. I understand you, INS. Over and out. Kolchak! Kolchak! When Matteo addresses one of the cops on the scene as Balaban, it made me wonder if Daniels might have been having a wink at actor Bob Balaban for some reason. It's an unusual name, and it's called out with great specificity. Balaban, give Mr. Kolchak a ride back to his uh, hotel. He's tired of the smog. He wants to go home. Oh, no, no, I like that. And awesome. if he won't get in the car, jam his tie in the door and drag him. Oh, that's a... Incidentally, these lines of McGavin's as he's being let out, all improvised. There's that smog Lieutenant Matteo was talking about. This hotel room scene is of particular interest because it does not appear in the original teleplay. There, as the officer leads Kolchak away from the crime scene, the scene cuts directly to a street at night, quote, in Hollywood, lined with apartment buildings, decaying old homes on large lots. Kolchak's car pulls into view, moving slowly down the street, Kolchak's voice. It took just three hours to find the house that Catherine was using. The multiple listing described it as a baronial retreat, a secluded handyman special, end quote. It must have been realized at some point during the filming that Kathleen Nolan's performance as Faye was much too engaging, much too kind and likable for viewers to forgive such an abrupt and curt dismissal. So another meeting between the characters had to be invented to give them closure. But this scene rather brilliantly provides much more than a polite goodbye. The original script had failed to crack the nut of how Kolchak found his way to Catherine Rollins' resting place. Quote, it took just three hours to find the house that Catherine was dot 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 using. The multiple listing described it as a baronial retreat, end quote. 
the eureka here is that Faye was a real estate agent. You would think that she was conceived as such so that the ball would eventually drop and she could rush in to assist Kolchak in a real positive way. But apparently, being in the position of so many writers working for television as writers and story editors, David Chase must have lost his thread only to discover it just in time. We see them go out the door together, but they don't stay together. I don't think they quite knew what these two were going to be doing afterwards as they were filming this scene, but there was the idea that they would somehow be doing it together. However, this would have required more scenes and more time than the show could offer. So as we cut to this next scene, the beginning of our finale, Faye is once again out of the picture. But this time for good. Hasta la vista. Don't let the door hit you where the dog bit you. A hastily rewritten Kolchak voiceover tells us that he and Faye spent the next 10 hours checking out various real estate rental listings on the telephone before they finally landed on the right one. So wait a minute. They rushed out of the hotel room to get on the telephone? What, did they go to her office? Is that where she keeps her directory? If you look closely at the actual evidence of the scenes that the two of them have together, even that last one in the hotel room, Faye never has any idea what sort of case Kolchak is actually on. She never hears the word vampire. Yet somehow, using exactly as little as what I've just described, the episode pulls off the wonderful illusion that Faye somehow saves the day. She's not even there to take a bow. In the great scheme of things, and in the original teleplay, Faye is just a kook, another one of Kolchak's eccentric helpers. But I think Kathleen Nolan's performance generates a character who's a good deal more than that. She's someone we want to know better, but there's just no time. The derelict baronial estate that Catherine Rollins now calls home is actually known as the Mount Calmia Estate, located at 1486 North Sweetser Avenue in Los Angeles. Some of you may recognize this enviable chunk of celluloid real estate as the home of the Angie Dickinson character in yet another Dan Curtis production, the TV movie The Norless Tapes. Kolchak is an intrinsically talkative character, so whenever he stops talking in scenes such as this, the burden of holding our interest shifts to the music composer. Robert Colbert did a wonderful job of scoring The Night Stalker and The Night Strangler, in his scores, I can hear something of the trenchant undertow found in the most powerful cues in the Quincy Jones score of In Cold Blood. For Kolchak the Night Stalker, the show's initial producer, Cy Chermak, turned to Gil Millet, who started out in the early 1950s as a jazz musician and composer, but had intuited a path over the years toward more experimental and electronic musics that placed him ideally for a new career in film scoring which began in 1969 with Ironside, but really found its definition with Universal's Night Gallery series that same year, and with the powerful science fiction classic The Andromeda Strain in 1971. You have to appreciate the fact that Darren McGavin, who was in his early 50s at the time of this series, was still out there performing his own stunts. I have my doubts that he did all of them, especially the driving stunts where he's only seen at a distance, but these relatively close shots would have been hard to fake. Returning now to what I was saying about Gil Millet, his memorably chilly and clinical score for the Andromeda Strain was originally released to vinyl back in 1971 in a special silver foil hexagonal sleeve and pressed as a hexagonal slab of vinyl. It's quite a handsome collectible. 
After the great success of the Andromeda strain, Millet would often be called upon to score films and television with fantastic storylines, including the films You'll Like My Mother, The Ultimate Warrior, Embryo, Starship Invasions, The Sentinel, and Blood Beach, and the TV productions The Six Million Dollar Man, Frankenstein the True Story, The Questor Tapes, and The Curse of King Tut's Tomb. He died in 2004 at the age of 72. And now our hero at last finds himself face to face with his vampire, Catherine Rollins. Suzanne Charney started out as a dancer, and I guess you could say that much of her performance here boils down to dance, the grace of her physical movement. She was a member of the ensemble in the original 1966 Broadway production of Sweet Charity starring Gwen Verdon. She reprised her role in the 1969 Bob Fosse movie and subsequently had a string of television roles including some fantasy-related shows, such as The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, Fantasy Island, and The Incredible Hulk. It's interesting that prior to the introduction of the movie rating system in 1968, female vampires were all in the nature of handmaidens to the primary male vampire. They might seduce a victim into the fold, but once that victim's throat was bared, they were knocked aside so that Dracula could glut himself. But once movies became liberated, shall we say, then it was like the movies could suddenly tell the truth. In order for the movies to fully sexualize female vampires, they had to become empowered, autonomous, fully comfortable with their own pleasure. This setting of the hilltop cross on fire may have some unfortunate KKK associations when viewed today. But it's also a wonderfully cinematic coup de théâtre, a larger-than-life reveal that has a similar impact to the finale in Hammer's classic horror of Dracula, as Peter Cushing's Van Helsing takes a running leap off a lawn table and jumps onto a heavy velvet curtain, pulling it down to unleash a torrent of sunlight on Christopher Lee's Count Dracula, a scene which was even more specifically quoted in the finale of The Night Stalker. I'm sure that the screenwriter Richard Matheson would have admitted where he got his idea, but when you're setting a story in a realistic context, as the Night Stalker did, it seems perfectly fair play for characters to get their ideas from the movies they've seen on television. Our story ends with Kolchak's return flight via 747. He confides to his tape recorder that he was booked for murder by the LAPD, but released without comment after the coroner's report noted that the victim's remains were found to be three years old, thus predating the alleged murder charge. So Kolchak gets to return home in triumph, but we never get to see his triumph acknowledged, much less published by Tony Vincenzo. I was sitting in Lieutenant Mateo's office waiting for execution. I happen to see a coroner's report on Catherine Rollins. I quote the coroner. The tissue structure of the individual appeared to be that of a female, species human, who had been dead at least three years. This is a medical conundrum for which I have no explanation. But there's always next week when Kolchak will face the werewolf. That wraps up The Vampire, but never fear, you're living now in the era of Blu-ray box sets. You can delve into the werewolf right now. 
In closing, I want to thank Mike White for sharing with me the original teleplay for The Vampire and the folks at Kino Lorber for restoring this series to a beauty and luster that makes it a joy to watch. I'm looking forward to watching the rest of these with you. I'm Tim Lucas, and I thank you for watching with me. Thank you.